How are you doing? How was your Christmas? How are you? Good. Good. Us too. Welcome to the Not The Top 20 podcast. This is a Monday pod being recorded on a completely undefined day of the week. Uh, it's that time of year. The pod schedule is confused. The EFL football schedule is remarkable. And it's going to be me, Ali Maxwell, and him, George Ellick, breaking down the Boxing Day and 27th December fixtures from the EFL. And all of this sponsored by Betfair. Hello, George. All right, mate. How was your first Dadmus Christmas Eva? <laughs> Christmas Eva um, was good. She was very well behaved and she had lots of cousins and aunts and uncles all taking her off our hands for timers for cuddles, <laughs> which was very useful for, for her and for, well, for me and her mum. Well, good. The Maxwell Christmas was good, albeit somewhat stressful because I forgot the ham. You've got the ham. Oh, no. I forgot the ham, spent the days leading up to Christmas at the in-laws, bought the ham, made the ham, delicious thing, then was meant to drive it to my family's on Christmas Day, forgot it. Hamless, we were. You cannot say that you made the ham, I'm afraid. That is ridiculous. <laughs> you did not, unless you're a pig, I'm afraid to say you did not make the ham. I glazed the ham. Okay. Substantially. And forgot it. So uh, I've been excommunicated from the family. So if anyone's looking for a family member, I am a free agent. Um, what do we need to talk about? Some big news for us. Some really exciting news. George, how do you fancy doing a bit of TV? Hey? Oh, yes, please. It's been a while, but I'm up for it. What would you like to do and when? I would like to sit on a sofa quite far away from you, but on the same sofa and rattle through the 21 players under the age of 21 that we believe to be the brightest prospects in the EFL, not including those who've been subject to a big money transfer or those who've played substantial Premier League games, just about as substantial as your ham glazing. All those on loan from Premier Correct. League clubs. And for that to be broadcast on Sky Sports Football and then repeated over and over again. That is what I'd like to do most. That's, that's actually really my New Year's resolution is to do that. Well, I've got incredible news for you and for anyone listening who likes the sound of that show and enjoyed its pre predecessor, the inaugural EFL 21 Under 21, which we did last year, recommissioned. We're back. We're back on that sofa with a lovely bit of distance between us. And we are recording next week. EFL 21 Under 21 Volume 2 will be recorded next week and will go out on Friday evening, the 6th of January 2023 on Sky Sports Football at 6pm. So please do, uh, if and when it arrives on the planner, hit record, uh, make sure you've got it recorded and or watch it live. I'm so excited. And yeah, we've got a, a busy week of work putting it all together so that it's uh, ship shape for you uh, next week. EFL 21 under 21, our show with Sky Sports. George, in the championship, I, I chose the bad cop for you because I want to talk about the major... Thanks, the major news from the last few days, Norwich City, Dean Smith parting ways after a 2-1 loss at Luton. What a poor few months it's been for Norwich City and for Dean Smith, now no longer together. Yeah, it's, this is a long time coming really, isn't it? Um, I think there were quite a lot of Norwich fans who um, thought that the appointment was basically wrong from the off, um, who didn't like what they saw in, the, in those last couple of <clears throat> months of the um, Premier League season. Uh, it never felt like a particularly good match. Um, having said that, you know, I'm not going to rewrite history. Um, I'm a big fan. Well, I 
certainly have been a big fan of Dean Smith. And, and at the time of his appointment, any Norwich fans who asked me what to expect, I was very much positive and said, you know, he's, he's a at worst very solid, but um, but certainly has has developed pretty well as a manager who um, who at both at Brentford and at Aston Villa, even if things didn't end the way he wanted to at Villa, um, had some some really great moments there before um, moving on. So it's a bit of a surprise. I think every single part of his tenure is basically quite confusing um, for someone who was a, you know, a bright young coach at Walsall and then quite clearly you know, to be recruited by Brentford at that stage, given how smart we know Brentford are, was a big you know, tick in the Dean Smith box. I think when you go and work at a club like Brentford's, having been working at Walsall, not only is the job going to be very different, but naturally you are going to learn a hell of a lot about the, you know, the smarter side of football, um, which I think meant that he was a, a, a much better head coach uh, when he left Brentford than, than maybe he was when he came in. And, you know, for Brentford to recruit a manager from Walsall who then moves on to, to take over one of the biggest clubs in the country shows, even though he didn't end up being the man to take them to the Premier League, um, what a smart bit of, of managerial recruitment that was. Whether or not Smith would have got the any other, you know, big Premier League job apart from Villa, given his affinity with the club and his close family connection to them, I, I don't know. Um, so it's just weird that at Norwich, it's been so you know, for, for a manager who's kind of taken a step forward with every job, who's got a clear understanding of the game, who's proven himself to be a manager really capable of building a, you know, a successful high-pressing team, a high-energy team, that he's come in into a Norwich squad who played a really energetic, high-intensity style under the former manager in Daniel Farker with some success, with, with massive success in the championship. It's pretty confusing to me to see how lethargic and how passive they've been. Um, I don't know if maybe that is a reflection of Smith, you know, for Smith himself as a manager, given, you know, his love for Aston Villa, you have to think that apart from the England job, his managerial goal in life has probably been fulfilled in terms of him going and managing the the club, his local club, the club that he supported. Um, And maybe it's just quite hard to get up for it again, uh, especially given that he didn't really have much of a a break after leaving Villa. And I wonder if... It was one week. He was sacked on the yeah. 7th of Nov. He was appointed on the 15th of Nov. He has, that's the only week in which he hasn't been employed as a football manager of a football club since he stepped up to take the Walsall job uh, as senior manager from the academy on January the 5th, 2011. So we're coming up to 12 years as a manager with essentially one week off, which yeah. probably wasn't that- a very relaxing week. So more than anything, I'm just hoping he gets a, a kip in. Uh, yeah, I mean for sure, and I and I I genuinely think that um, you know a, a a team is a reflection of their manager um, taken too literally is 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 just something people say. But I do wonder in this case if maybe Dean Smith just needed a bit of a breather and a bit of a break and, and a bit of time to get over what must have been a, a hammer blow for him to lose his dream job after massive success and after building such a, a great affinity with the Villa fans. Maybe this just came a bit too soon, uh, which meant that. That was reflected in the energy levels of his players. You know, it's bizarre to see, you know, taking like Kenny McLean as an example, who's been by no means um, Norwich's, you know, worst performers this season. But under Daniel Farker, he was a central midfield player who could just dominate games and run the show and, and be that person who everything went through him. He would control possession. He would create chances. And looking at his numbers this season, I was looking at it earlier this week, like he's in the periphery of games consistently. He's he's just a, he's a passenger. Um, and that is the case with so many players who have been such top performers at this level in the past, who under Smith just like a shadow of them former selves. Yes, I'm sure he would say 
or Daniel Farker had uh, Emiliano Buendia. And that, of course, makes a big difference. But this Norwich squad is still very talented. Um, I think it's a fairly damning indictment of the competitiveness of the league that um, you've got Watford and Norwich who are, are probably still odds-on, well, who are both still odds-on to finish in the top six in the playoffs. who both sat the manager before the turn of the year. Just goes to show that you don't have to be particularly good as a relegated team uh, in in order to to still have a good chance of, of getting promoted. But this is also a big appoint, appointment for for Stuart Webber to get right because he's got this wrong, and there's no denying that. And his his star has definitely fallen a little bit from being somebody who eighteen months ago was being touted by not just myself but others for possibly being the, the Manchester United sporting director to now probably having to. There's certainly question marks over his commitment to the job in his current situation, but also his judgment as well. And that's the first time we've been able to say that. Yeah, I, I don't have any any qualms with Norwich parting ways with Dean Smith or with them looking for a new manager at this stage. I don't think it's a shock. I don't think it's unfair, particularly. What I will say outside of Smith, just building on on, on how you finished there, talking about Stuart Webber and, and the other people in charge at Norwich City who haven't left their jobs this week. I definitely feel like things have been badly managed, certainly since relegation was confirmed from the Premier League, although I know that Norwich fans will be able to say it it came before then as well. Of course, I'm not quite as focused on the the Premier League ins and outs as I am in the Championship. Like Relegation from the Premier League always sours the atmosphere at a club and there are pitfalls that come with it. But I still don't feel like the people in charge of the club took that seriously enough just my view from the outside. And the reason that's even more surprising is it's in complete contrast to the last time they came down, where even at the time, it was clear and we remarked constantly, the communication was excellent, the plan was clear, the process was clear and explained clearly to the fans by Stuart Webber in the main. And it allowed the club to feel much more solid in basically all areas than a lot of clubs coming down. They were unaffected by the hangover of relegation. They didn't sack the manager, Daniel Farker. They just took a deep breath. They pulled up their socks and they cracked on kind of confident in what they were doing. But it it hasn't felt like that at all this summer. And Stuart Webber, who's someone that I have praised specifically for the manner of his communication with the fans, is just seemingly acting quite different in the last year or so. Mm, I agree. I think it's fair to say that in any job within football, it must be very, very difficult to receive abuse, criticism, whether in any way justified or sometimes not particularly questioning of, of things that you've done, which you may find a bit unfair. And previously, it just felt like he kind of dealt with that head on. He addressed it. And in doing so, he helps to resolve some of the issues. But this time, it hasn't been like that at all. Um, look at the transfer business. They didn't sign anyone in January last last uh, season, which I know the fans were upset about. In the summer, they signed four players, Sara and Nunez from South America, young players. Um, they paid a decent chunk of change for uh, Isaac Hayden and Aaron Ramsey, the youngster from Aston Villa. I, I don't think four signings alone is a, a disgrace or a massive mistake, but it, it kind of looks obvious now either that, that more was needed or just a different profile of player. There are areas of the pitch where they just don't look particularly strong, certainly out wide in particular, I think. Um, Maybe two lads moving over from South America, talented as they are, and as much as I've loved watching Nunez, (laughs) maybe a 19-year-old Loney who hasn't played above League One before, a midfielder in Hayden with a knee problem who didn't play for 15 games or so. The players themselves have not been the issue, to be clear, but they've also not been the agents of change that sometimes you want your summer signings to be. So, um, yeah, I guess... What's next would be my question to you. Suggestion from the Michael Bailey piece on The Athletic 
that there's no money available to pay Compo to hire a manager from another club or to make additions in January, which I just find a bit of a head scratcher. Like I obviously need to understand Norwich's finances a bit better, but you pay a reported 10 mil combined for the South American lads this summer. And then is that, is that it? That was all the money you had and that's how you decided <laughs> to spend it. It's a bit weird. Um, David Wagner's the current favorite with Scott Parker, Russell Martin, Sean Dyche, Mark Robbins. What are your thoughts on what's next for Norwich? It's it's hard to. I mean, you're kind of second guessing what, what Weber would do, and and the Wagner link is clearly there from their their work at Huddersfield together. You've then got in Russell Martin and Mark Robbins, two managers who have um, an affinity to Norwich as a football club. But you would think that if that is right about you know compensation um, not being something they're willing to pay, you can be guaranteed that both Coventry and Swansea would be looking for um, fair. Um, compo for, for both of those or they'd be due fair compensation for both of those so you can probably draw a line through those, those two I mean Scott Parker is probably the most interesting from a neutral point of view not thinking what would Weber do purely in terms of he has twice taken on you know relegated Premier League sides with squads full of quality that have been underperforming um, and taken them both up to the Premier League the issue is that I mean, they had a manager, Daniel Farker, who I think was was far better than Scott Parker, who was very adept at taking teams up from the Championship up to the Premier League, and they're not doing very well when he was there. Uh, and they decided to sack him. So, is is Parker young enough to still be learning? Is Parker's future being a a good Premier League manager? I'm not entirely sure. There's seemingly been quite big issues in terms of his relationship with, with hierarchy at both clubs as well, which has been his downfall. So. From a pure footballing perspective, I think Parker would probably make the most sense in terms of what he's achieved and, and, and style of play. Um, but I think it's also fairly unlikely as well. Um, Wilder is 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 an obvious one to me. If you can't pay compensation, you want to get promoted. Um, yeah, things clearly didn't go right for him at, at, at Borough. And again, you have the issue where he is a manager who clearly wants more creative, you know, wants more control, and that he won't get that at Norwich. Um, but if you can't pay compensation, Weber... you want someone in. I like the idea of Weber hiring Wilder and then just resigning immediately in order to make, yeah. in order to give it the best possible chance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. But that is that is the issue. I mean, I see that Ralph Hasenhutl is in the in the betting as well. Then you think, well, in terms of of options who are out of out of a job, you know, he would be fairly attractive. But if you can't afford to pay compensation, I'm not sure he can probably afford to pay Ralph Hasenhutl what he'd want for that job either. Um, so I don't really know. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we saw two, three very left field names um, that we don't know a great deal about enter the betting in the next couple of days. Um, I'm sure there'll be plenty, you know, Stuart Webber will have a long list of managers uh, and coaches in in world football that he thinks are attractive and will be sounding them out at the moment um, as to who, you know, can fit their budget. But from that list, I'm going to take a punt and say probably none of them. Let's give Luton some credit for the win. A, A big one for Rob Edwards. Uh, and a performance with with all the components that were needed to beat this Norwich team that were in such poor shape. Like it's obviously it was obviously a good time to play Norwich, and they made the most of it, capitalising on errors for the first goal, showing the sort of energy and the sort of effort that it seemed like Norwich were lacking and had been lacking for a few weeks. Um, good play from Clark, 
uh, in the build-up to the winner and a banging finish from Corley Woodrow as well. That was after they were down to 10 men uh, with, with Doughty then clearing off the line to, to save the three points. So uh, the game against against QPR, Luton QPR tomorrow, that's the 29th. I think that's going to be really interesting. Two new managers, Edwards and Critchley, battling it out. We get to see who seems to have settled into the job quicker. Uh, that's certainly one to watch in the midweek fixtures, if I can call them that. As mentioned, don't know what day of the week it is. <laughs> a good cop in the championship. Huddersfield Town for winning a football match. It's a low bar this week, um, but they they crossed it. In fact, they're the only team in the bottom eight to win. So it wasn't just winning a football match. It was picking up a lot of significant points in comparison to the teams that they are very much trying to chase down. Uh, from behind as well against Preston, this was a, a Huddersfield side that hadn't scored in their last three games. So going behind 1-0 to a, a header from a set piece, it, it fell over. Uh, I'll be honest, that's how I felt. Um, but they summoned something. Brahima Diara, probably the most notable name, first and foremost, coming off the bench, the youngster, another B-team signing and a B-team graduate who's was on loan at Harrogate last season, looked quite lively. He came off the bench with a really eye-catching display, um, his assist setting up Rhodes for the equaliser. And then hello, Jack Rudoni. We like this a lot. Skill, speed, and a great cross for Kessler Hayden to, to tap in at the back post. And and that was that. It was, a, it was quite remarkable. I stuck it on iFollow for the last 25 minutes or so. It was it was quite exciting to watch um, how they got back into that game, and and as I say, quite surprising as well. So well done Huddersfield, well done Mark Fotheringham. Um, much less bothering him after this one. His interviews are they're just compulsory viewing at this point, aren't they? Like mm. <laughs> I went to watch it this morning, and I was chuckling within five seconds because he was asked, you know, the classic like big win, hadn't won here since the sixties, haven't won many games recently. How does it feel? And he went, yeah, listen, I'm I'm really relaxed. And I thought, Mark, mate, <laughs> you give off one of the least relaxing energies I've ever seen from a football manager, like Nathan Jones levels of sort of intensity. So I didn't really buy it. Would you but quite I, like, you it. know, just maybe a day on the sofa, just you, Nathan and Mark, just sitting on the sofa, a couple of beers, just watching, you know, a bit, 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 of, bit of TV. Could you be up yeah. for that? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, feet up. One of those days that we had the other day. Hung over. Ooh, interesting. That adds a wrinkle. That adds a wrinkle. I'm not sure that I think I'd probably want to iron out. <laughs> I don't think Nathan Jones would like me very much if he was hungover. And I'm I'm not sure I'd like him that much if I was hungover, to be honest. No, they're, they're not hungover. Only you're hungover in this situation. <laughs> okay. Well, I think I could I reckon I could rouse myself <laughs> out of that. I think the I think okay. the ex- I think the I think the remarkableness of that situation would would kind of wipe away the hangover pretty quick. <laughs> Anyway, um, what we will find out is whether that strong second half was a flash in the pan or, or something more real. And we'll find out Rotherham at home on Thursday night. Um, big one, a win there. And I think the vibe could shift, you know, considerably for the better mm. for Fotheringham and Huddersfield. A, a draw or a defeat, dare I say it. And yeah, that'll get wiped away pretty quickly. Uh, so elsewhere in the championship, it was it was more of the same at the top, George. Burnley three, Birmingham nil. Oh. I mean, this is, yeah, this was, in my yeah. mind... <clears throat> mm. You like this? I mean, I don't know if um, Burnley need to announce themselves, um, but I, I thought that the the manner of the victory over Birmingham was one of the most impressive displays um, that we've seen in the Championship for a long time because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in, in game state and the rest of it. But you, what you had yesterday was a team going one nil up within 50 seconds with Zaruri, his first kick of the ball, coming back, having come back from barely kicking the ball in, in Qatar for Morocco. 
sending them 1-0 up. Up against the Birmingham side who've been in, in very good form, who I think have proven themselves to be one of the best counter-attacking sides in the division. Where my mind basically playing in a game where they're not going to have much of the ball up against a team with a high line is is almost ideal for them. And they're 1-0 down after a minute. And, you know, I kind of thought the game might open up from there. Um, Connor Roberts put in one of the best individual displays, uh, especially in the first half. You know, he made the first goal. He scored the second and actually made the second as well. It was a 1-2 and a brilliant finish um, from him. But it was just how easy it was for, Burn- for Burnley to stop Birmingham, where Birmingham had had one shot in the first half. It was a Bakuna free kick from about 38 yards that whistled wide of the top left-hand corner. They had one other shot in the whole game, which came from Troy Deeney, which was blocked without getting anywhere near the goal. So this game effectively started 1-0 to Burnley, given how early they scored. And yet Birmingham were unable to fashion a single good opportunity or even bad opportunity from open play in the whole game. And to do that, you know, we had this conversation last week about about Burnley and they're, they're, they're running hot. And, you know, yesterday again, they scored from from two of their first three shots in the game. They didn't have create plenty of chances at all. But to come up against a, a mid-table championship side and see out the game the way that they did, control possession even from being ahead and be able just to completely just nullify Birmingham was was incredibly impressive, um, especially... You know, when you think that they've only conceded, that they've only kept seven clean sheets out of 23 this season, which is probably the the one issue you could pick out of them. But their game seems to go one of two ways. Either if the opposition are going to take the game to them, well, okay, fine, we'll just have to score more than you. Or they just control it completely. Um, incredibly impressive. I think Vincent Company, kind of week by week, is becoming more and more um, the you know, a candidate for one of those managers who passes through the EFL where one day we're going to look back and wonder how, and especially because, you know, he's he's got to be, in my mind, at the moment, the, the very, very likely successor to to Pep Guardiola in what must be the most attractive job in club football. Um, and I see nothing at the moment to to, to, to see why he wouldn't be, be successful in that. An incredible appointment from Burnley and, and a team who just seem to get stronger week by week. Well, John Eustace and Lionel Scaloni were compared on last week's <laughs> by one of us and it was all about them starting really well and how good their game plans were at nil-nil so to go down after 50 seconds was yeah, it was just quite funny um, Burnley just just too fun too good in that one Sheffield United they won as well seven wins in their last eight three one win at home to Coventry um, they've won four in a row away from home they go to Blackpool tomorrow night they're just in such good shape at the moment uh, Hecking Bottom doing a, a, a similarly fabulous job, I would say, and and perhaps somewhat over the radar, as I've suggested a few times in the last. Over few the weeks. radar, yes, somewhere over the wow. radar, way up high. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's, uh, right. he's he's walking in the air. They they are they're such a complete team, Sheffield United. I mean, in this game, you know, Coventry had their moments and played pretty well. Um, Ahmed Hudzic had to make an amazing last ditch tackle on Jokeresh. Ahmed Hodzic gave away a penalty, which Jokeresh uh, missed. Commentary obviously got the goal towards the end. And outside of that, Sheffield United were, were pretty clinical. It was three goals. I think they had eight shots in total. But, you know, they created some huge chances. The goal on the break. Uh, again, the break being completely run by Iliman and Jai and ending up with McAtee having a 1v1, which he slotted home. And then the, the Kieran Clark goal, another set-piece goal from them, uh, second most in the league behind Millwall, and 2-2 two and two after Egan's against Wigan. Norwood's delivery, just absolutely magnificent at the moment. They're just getting goals from all areas. You know, McBurney's missed the last few games due to injury and a bit of court case and whatnot. 
but before then, as discussed on this pod, the numbers that he was putting up for about two months were remarkable. You'd expect him to come back in pretty soon, albeit Sharp has, has done fairly well in his absence. They get goals from midfield. Doyle scored. McAtee scored. They get goals from set pieces. They even occasionally get goals from their wingbacks, and they currently have two good wingbacks um, on both sides, which is a, a real rarity in this league. So uh, I think they're in really good shape, a really good all-round team, uh, now with an eight-point gap to third. So yeah, nothing further to add, Your Honour, other than that I hope we get the title race that I'm expecting i think i'm expecting more from sheffield united than a lot of people are i don't think burnley are going to pull away from them i think it's going to be magnificent i hope so anyway otherwise the, the top of the championship section of the pod will be quite boring for the next few months um more, <laughs> it was a, a week just of- just as well um very sad to see callum o'hare stretched off in, oh. with what looks like a, a a bad one um having um you know missed a, a fair chunk of the start of the season one of the most exciting players to watch in the championship who you know it's no um coincidence that Coventry's upturn in form has been since Cam has come back into the side and you know I saw Mark Robbins said after the game that he he's, he's fearing the worst uh no news as we record but hopefully there'll be some good news on on that because it'd be a massive shame to see his um his season ended early and his, and his career impacted anyway because um he is uh, yeah, one of the one of the shining lights of the championship. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It was a bad, bad day for that in the championship with Ben Wiles, uh, who's one of my favourite players for Rotherham. Also breaking his ankle, and he he's going to be out for at least the next few months, if not the whole season as well, which is desperately sad for him um, and for Rotherham as well, of course. Uh, Boxing Day was basically more of the same towards the top, more of the same from uh, from the, the form teams in the division, George, the much-discussed Middlesbrough and West Brom. I don't feel like anyone wants to hear us talk. Sigh of relief eight. for me there. What's that? Well, I just after saying they're both going to finish in the top seven, top six, sorry, and then Webb Baggies immediately lost. So I was just quite happy they both <laughs> won and, and what didn't have to deal with Pelters. Do you want to tell me about West Brom's win against Bristol City or, or Borough's win against whoever Borough were playing? Um, yeah. Uh, Let's do. So there were four red cards in the uh, championship on on Boxing Day. Delivered late. Yeah. Christmas cards. Yes. Mm. Um, I just think let's just talk about um, Brandon Thomas Sante's finish, maybe for the for the second goal for West Brom because it was beautiful. Um, you know, I'd have been quite surprised if you told me twelve months ago that Brandon Thomas Sante would be doing that for West Brom in the championship. But um, you know, he looks like being a brilliant signing uh, and good to see Rogic with the uh, with the assist as well uh, having come on in the second half um, a good finish from Matt Phillips as well for the first um, a quite a rare sight seeing him uh, running scampering down the left hand side and scoring uh, rather than down the right hand side um, but this was a really good bounce back from West Brom after the, dis- the disappointment of of their good run under Corbyn ending with that um, you know I guess both the performance against Coventry and the manner of the, the defeat you know they were second best all game thought they were going to get a, a pretty undeserved point and then conceded a penalty they didn't think it was a penalty late on um but there was no hangover from that at all but still big concerns I guess for Bristol City who look to be doing their best to uh find themselves in a relegation scrap and, and you do have to wonder if Nigel Pearson's days at Ashton Gate might be numbered although with the off-field issues there um maybe uh they won't be in a position to sack a manager anytime soon you're costly getting a lot of love from West Brom fans for really starting to inhabit the kind of Pac-Man role and do that really well, um, letting everyone else in front of him um, sprinkle the stardust in the final third. Rogic and Swift in particular unleashed because of 
um, the, the sturdiness of your Costello behind them. And, and the keeper Palmer as well made some big saves in this game. But we also had Borough winning 4-1. Just fantastic performance. Again, really exciting attacking football. Again, Wigan had their moments, but the the, the new Colo Torre Wigan style, we talked about the fact they were likely to be teething issues. In my eyes, they do not have the squad to be doing this at the level that they're playing at. They were very light at the back with a youngster playing at centre-back in Hughes. But uh, it's four wins in five for Borough and Akpom just in imperious form, um, set up three times by Ryan Giles. Uh, the final one, cross from Giles on the run from deep onto the foot of Akpom, eight yards out, curling around a defender, just summing up why I can't think of, of many players in the English game with better delivery from wide areas than Ryan Giles. Mm. And, and Carrick has developed a system that's getting him in areas to deliver. It's getting Isaiah Jones in nice areas as well, although he had a, a bit of a quieter game. And I think the Marcus Force goal is, is almost more significant than the Akpom hat-trick because I'm now happy to say that Akpom's one of the highest performing players in the whole league. And if we expect that to continue in this number 10 role, if they can have a nine scoring goals as well, they're going to be a huge attacking threat. So hopefully Force's goal can can sort of uh, loosen him up a little bit as well. Okay, there were two early games in the Championship, Millwall and Sunderland, both beating teams above them, which squeezed that seeded batch even denser than ever. It was Watford nil, Millwall two. It was Sunderland two, Blackburn one. George, which of those did you like the best? What happened to Vicarage Road? Because, and that is a rhetorical question, because I know what happened, and Millwall beat Watford 2-0. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but did so in incredibly convincing fashion, in, in surprisingly convincing fashion. You know, but we spoke, and well, I spoke on the Betting Show the week before about how, even though Watford was still um, not the most attractive watch, who weren't necessarily getting the most out of quite a few of their players, although with Joao Pedro, that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, he had certainly improved them massively um, defensively with four clean sheets in a row. Um, but here against Millwall, from basically the first whistle, Millwall were all over Watford like a rash and um, were creating so many chances, were quite clearly the better side. By the time uh, Vogue Slammer had scored his first goal for the club, um, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it already looked like a matter of time. Their, Watford's cause wasn't helped at all by Hassan Kamara with his third red card. For Watford, um, with you know, this gets filed in in my book where um, you know I, I don't think it should be a red card because McNamara clearly provokes him by kind of body checking him as he's running back. Um, I think if you are body checked and then you push someone over, yes, I can understand how it's an offence. But a you haven't hurt the bloke and b just book him and move on. Um, in my mind, but I know a lot of people disagree. And then Joao Pedro um, going off injured as well in the first half. It, and again, similar to Calamo O'Hare, it doesn't look good. Um, that is a big issue for Watford. Um, it's a big issue given that there is a lot of talk that Ishmael Yassar might be moving on in January. So you do wonder if Pedro is injured, are they still going to, um, you know, would they look to keep him? Will he be happy to stay if, you know, the, these rumoured moves were close? I mean, it's, who knows, basically. And it does feel like having such a weird squad where you've got, basically two players who are the basically the MVPs of your squad. It's quite a weird way to manage the whole thing. And maybe there's too much focus on them both on and off the pitch, where on the pitch teams know that if you stop them, you're going to completely blunt Watford and then off the pitch because there's so much focus on them. Um, <clears throat> but Millwall was superb here. And, you know, 11 against 10, um, their dominance was was only more evident. Um, although the, the second goal from um, Zion Fleming was 
another yeah, it's not his first goal this season where he's it's just a, a cross that's kind of gone straight through and, and gone in. Um but yeah, he's he's obviously looking forward to January the first uh, coming up fairly soon. But um yeah, I mean Millwall by far the better team. I didn't really see this coming. And I think this is Millwall basically saying to the rest of the league, you know, we are um you know, I ran through the teams when I was uh, tipping up um, Borough and, and West Brom to finish in the top six. I ran through the teams. I'm not sure I even mentioned Millwall, um, but this was a performance where you know if they play like this every week, then then they'll absolutely be right in the running for a, a top six berth. Yeah, Billy Mitchell starring in midfield uh, for them, and well, I just think there's a minimum threshold of effort and appetite that you need to compete with Millwall, and that's credit to Millwall for for bringing that in every single game that they play. Watford didn't get close to meeting it. And we're comfortably beaten. Um, yeah, not good enough for for a team that's underwhelmed so much this season. It seems amazing that they're still in, in such a strong position uh, in the league. But that's this year's championship where the seeded batch is maybe more ridiculous than ever. There's a there's an 11-point gap between first and third. So 11 points covers um, top team Burnley and third-place team Blackburn. And then from Blackburn to 21st... <laughs> That's 19 teams. There's 12 points between 19 teams. It's pretty crazy. Um, Sunderland did the business against Blackburn. They left it late. Ellis Sims with the winning goal with a glorious first touch where the ball's played into his feet inside the box. There's a defender just going to close down, going to try and make sure that he doesn't get it onto his right foot, his preferred foot, and get a shot away. And at the very last minute before he takes the touch, before the ball physically hits his boot, Sims just sort of nudges it forward, shifts balance so quickly that the defender you know, can't react in time and then just kind of stabbed it with the outside of his right foot into the corner. Absolutely loved it. Uh, Sims on the score sheet, Ross Stewart on the score sheet. This is a Sunderland that we want to see from now until the rest of the season because this is a very exciting Sunderland. You know, they missed these two for around seven games. I think it was where, where neither of them were available. They got six points from those seven games. And outside of that, it's 28 from 17 when when one or both has been available, um, which is not an incredible record, but it's a pretty strong one. It's 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 playoff flirting. Uh, and it's no surprise, really, with two really good strikers, perfect for the modern championship, both with physicality, both with goal threat as well. Um, they've got the, the sprinkling of stardust. Amad Diallo's looking ridiculous at the moment. What a few months he has had. Um, Jack Clark, Patrick Roberts, Alex Pritchard, these guys are... are seriously good attacking players. I I feel pretty strongly that if Sunderland could add another really dependable defender, maybe another really sturdy and energetic central defensive midfielder, then they could be a massive playoff threat. Uh, Reading 2, mm. Swansea 1. Reading not far off the playoffs either. And they are really, really good at the Majeski Stadium. Um, from the off here, the game settled into a pattern that was... Not massively surprising, which was uh, Swansea, for the most part, having possession. Um, for the most part, not really penetrating Reading's back line and getting into really dangerous areas. And then, all of a sudden, Reading won a lot. Carroll smashing home after a, a set piece. Then Reading threw on goal, win a penalty, missed. one nil at half-time, and you think, oh, they're going to they're gonna regret that missed penalty. They didn't. Tom Ince capitalised on Swansea mistake, passing it out from the back, 2-0 uh, and despite Swansea getting one goal back they couldn't do what they've done a few times recently uh, and, and cancel out Reading's lead so three more points for Reading at the Madstad we had an interesting question from a Reading fan called Alex George about Swansea about Russell Martin I wanted to hear your thoughts on he tweeted us after the game to say I'd love to hear your thoughts on Russell Martin 
I cannot understand the optimism, even from when he was appointed, yet to finish in the top half of any season he's managed. Will questions get asked of him? Um, I think it's there's quite a lot to impact. It's an interesting case study, isn't it, in terms of working out where you stand on football, on football management in general, because it's true what Alex says. Martin finished 13th in the league with MK, 15th last season with Swansea, and they're currently 16th, albeit three points off the playoffs and seven above the relegation zone. You can just point at that, stop there and say it's not good enough, and therefore he's not that good because it's a cutthroat results business, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, yeah, I've had a long thought about this, so I'm wondering what your instinct is. I think there's a feeling from a lot of fans of other championship clubs that Martin's a bit of a media darling, that we might be part of that as well, without necessarily the results to back it up. Yeah, I mean, it's it, the wording of the question is a little bit disingenuous. He has never been, he's never finished in the top half of any team he's managed ever. I mean, he's he's managed two full seasons in his managerial career so far so I mean yeah he's yet to finish in the top half in two management uh, managerial campaigns and in one of them with MK Dons he finished 13th which given their <clears throat> the preseason predictions was a good finish and I think there's no denying at all that he laid the foundations for what was a, a pretty incredible season last season under Liam Manning who took over on the eve of the season with with the Swansea job it's also you know important to caveat it by looking at the fact that Steve Cooper left again on the eve of the season, he came in to a side who um, I guess you could draw comparisons to Huddersfield and Carlos Corbran, where they had lost the playoff, playoff final the season before. They had lost key players and key positions, uh, especially in terms of loans. And then the manager who took them there at, at, a, at a terrible time. And I think the, the general consensus was uh, at Swansea that he did a pretty good job and that Swansea fans liked the style of play. Um, I... Def- having said that, this isn't just an impassioned defence of Martin. I think there are still massive questions to be answered. I-, I completely agree that we're yet to see a great deal of substance to support the promise. Um, but you know, the way that I like to look at football personally is to look at results over a short period of time as being one column in which to to tick. And there's plenty of other things to look at here, whether it is the development of certain players. You know, you look at the, the likes of Joel Piru and, and Michael Obafemi, two um, young forward players who playing in a, a really kind of pos- patient possession-based system have both flourished under under Martin's um, stewardship, although, you know, Obafemi clearly hasn't had the season he wanted so far this campaign. Um, the style of play itself is is the kind of style that I like to watch. And and even looking at this Reading game in isolation, you know, Swansea created loads and, and not many teams do go to to the um to the Medeski and, and create a great deal of chances. But you know, they had plenty of decent opportunities. Um I think they had a, an expected goals in the game of two. Watching the to get the watching it back, you know, it wouldn't have been this is the kind of game where all three results were, were generally possible, albeit game, game state would have played, played a part given Reading were ahead fairly early on. Um so it's you know I, I don't think we you and I sit here saying Russell Martin is is destined for for big things. Um, you know, we had the chat about Norwich earlier. He is a, a very obvious candidate there, given his um, his playing career with the club. And I I think it would be quite surprising to see them them make an approach for him at this stage. But in terms of promise, and in terms of what is a managerial career massively in in its infancy, I think we are seeing a lot there to like, um, and we are seeing processes that I think do lead to success. 
So, yeah, and, and I, I like the way he talks about football. I like how eloquent he is. Um, and I like the way his teams play. And I think it's a, it's a matter of time until that is uh, that that does come to be um, more impressive. And, and who knows this season, the championship is so tight. He's about three wins away from taking him into the top six anyway. So, um, you know, wait and see, I guess. Yeah, I think on, on the bit about the optimism from when he was appointed, quite a few things you've touched on. Um, the style of play, it, it is and was very extreme and interesting and in some people's eyes aesthetically pretty pleasing and by the end of that season at MK Dons the results had started to come and they did look pretty good they were playing some pretty amazing stuff then there's the youth he's still only 35 36 this is an incredibly young manager and i, I sort of liken it to your team signing a, a wonder kid player like you get excited about about that player based on potential rather than the fact that they've got three 20 season goals in their career history that you've seen them and, mm. and been there and, and done it. There's a big part of football is being excited about being, you know, being at the start of, of someone's journey. And I think that was a big case for, for Martin's optimism as well. And then, yeah, the conviction with which he speaks about the game is, is pretty attractive. Um, I would say um, on the style, something I thought about a lot this morning because I watched the game last night. It, it's a pretty tough watch. Like it is a tough watch when it's not working. And, it, yeah. and, in, and in recent weeks, it hasn't quite been good enough. I think there's a bit of what might be called availability bias at play here when people think and talk about Russ Martin's teams when they're not in good form. Uh, availability bias or availability heuristic, that's defined as a, a mental shortcut that relies on immediate examples that come to a given person's mind when evaluating a topic, a concept, or a decision. And what I mean is, Swansea have so much of the ball that we can instantly conjure up what it looks like because we see so much of it. The patterns of their games are so similar. For the other championship teams in the seeded batch, let's leave out Burnley, Sheffield United. For the other championship teams in that batch, I don't think fans of opposition teams would have such an easily summoned vision of what they do, of what's good or what's bad about the way that they play, because they're just not that extreme, right? Any system that's not really working is unpleasant to watch. I'm going to bring up Stevenage right now, because across the EFL, they're probably the best example of a team playing an insanely direct style of play and scoring loads of goals and keeping the opposition at bay and picking up loads of points. And it's pretty exciting to watch. I saw them play against Orient uh, yesterday, and they weren't amazing for the whole 90 minutes. But for the first 15 minutes, I found myself excited by the rate that they were able to get the ball into Orient's box. They didn't score any goals from it. They didn't even really have any clear-cut chances from it. But it was quite exciting. It was working, right? Going back to Swansea, if you zoom out rather than focus on one game or one month, the style of play does create chances in open play. And it does score goals in open play. Only four teams have scored more goals than Swansea in open play this season. That's with Pirro massively underperforming his XG, while also being the only striker consistently available because of Obafemi's kind of disrupted few months. They're the, the sixth highest scorers uh, from open play in line with underlying numbers. It also does stop the opposition from having a lot of shots. They have faced the second fewest amount of open play shots in the league. Their XG against from open play is the fourth best in the league. So, if you take out how it makes you feel, the facts are, for the most part, a team that takes a fair amount of shots, more than average, and concedes less than average, if you do that for ages, you'll generally do pretty well. Now, 
the one thing that is definitely fair to bring up, and I've, I think, brought it up a fair amount in the last year or two. When things are going badly for a Russ Martin team, whether it was MK Dons or Swansea now, it's always the same stuff. And it's so like obvious and you can point at it and you can point it out time and time again. It's obvious stuff that they seemingly can't or, or don't fix, right? And it comes back to the style, a lot of this. Defensively, either one of or a mixture of the following happens. They can see the goal from a set piece. That happened here against Reading. They can see the goal from giving it away, passing out from the back and then scrambling. That happened here. Or they can see the goal on the break because they've overcommitted. A few threatening moments here. Reading, pretty good on the break. It didn't happen. You know, they didn't score a goal, but pretty dangerous. When they concede chances, they concede pretty good ones. And that's not great. They often look, it often looks, you know, pretty bad because they're so often, they've committed so many men forward that they're just scrambling. They're all over the place. Whereas most other teams play with a much more set defense. Going forward, the issues are not being able to penetrate the final line of defense because teams have bunkered in. So you spend ages in the final third going sideways without any meaningful uh, attempts. There's been some wasteful finishing. And just because of the way teams defend against them, you know, too many bodies between the guy taking the shot and the goal in general. Um, so it's, yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I personally, probably more so than a few years ago, I now see a lot of beauty and, the, and I have a lot more respect for teams that play what I'd call a kind of mixed style. So that's teams who can, who can play through the thirds, but don't always. Teams that can go long and hit the channel, play into a physical striker, but don't always do that. A team like Plymouth Argyle springs to mind from League One, a, a team whose system itself creates chances while maintaining a level of sturdiness that I don't think Swansea really, really have. I, I also think the, the possession style has become easier to defend against because teams have got more used to defending against it and attacking it on the break. So as Martin's style has continued, I think the comfort of the opposition has grown uh, and the level of coaching against this sort of style. So I'm sitting here wondering if Swansea and Martin moved a little bit towards that more mixed style, would it make them better going forward? Maybe, but possibly not. Would it make them less flimsy defensively? Instinctively, I'd say yes, but it's pretty difficult to measure. Um, but even if nothing changes, last thing, I do think that the ceiling of the team, because of the style, is higher than some of the teams around them. A small improvement in finishing, a hot streak from Piro, a small reduction in mistakes from the back, and this team can and will pick up points a lot, a lot, a lot of points quite quickly. So, yeah, it is fair to ask the question. And it was a good question from Alex. I'm glad he asked it. Um, those are some of our thoughts on on Russ Martin on, on Swansea. I, I don't think it's fair to say he's underperforming, but he's definitely not overperforming at this stage either. Maybe that will come. Rotherham 2, Stoke 2, Hull 1, Blackpool 1, Cardiff 0, QPR 0 with the championship draws. Uh, tons of games over the next two days. So let's move on to League One. George, uh, heading into the weekend, the top three, were they stuttering? Were they stumbling? It was one win in the last five for Argyle. It was two in their last six for Ipswich. It was three draws in a row for Sheffield. They all went and won on Boxing Day. All three of them. Yeah, all three <clears throat> picking up. Um, yeah, none of them slipping up here. Uh, I watched the Oxford versus Ipswich game where Oxford were okay for the first 15 minutes. Um, went closest to scoring through two quite similar efforts from Javan Anderson and Matt Taylor um, before... Ipswich just really turned it on. Um, aided a little bit, I guess, by um, Ed McGinty making his league debut after Simon Eastwood, the Oxford keeper, um, had a calf injury. McGinty couldn't really catch the ball, which didn't help. But um, there was 
you know there were light years basically between Ipswich and Oxford for the um set for the for the final hour of the game. Um, Ipswich were dominant in pretty much every area. Burns was was had a massive game on the right hand side. Um, Morsi and Evans controlled midfield after Evans had quite a shaky start. Adapo was a threat. Chaplin was good. You know, Harness before he came off was was quality. They were just and you know and, and Wolfenden as well. Um, they were just the best team that Oxford have played so far this season by miles, and it showed in the scoreline. Which you know, even though there was there were signs of Oxford life in the first fifteen minutes, this you know the, the scoreline is fairly irrelevant here. The 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 gap between the two teams was so wide. Um, for it, for Sheffield Wednesday, it was a bit more difficult. You know, they went one 0 down at Fleetwood. Uh, but we're able to to turn it around, um, and then uh, for, for for Argyle, who knocked on the door, it was an amazing stat that they've played Cheltenham away three of the last four Boxing Days. Um, quite quite fun. Uh, not not the worst journey, I guess, for Argyle fans to to make on that day. Um, yeah, it it took a while to get there. Um, I kind of feel like it's Morgan Whitaker's trademark goal is is rolling the ball into the bottom corner from distance, and you kind of wonder how the the keeper doesn't get closer. But um, but yeah, I mean they were the better team uh, in the game, and and I, you know for them, I think especially where it does feel like any you know any poor results for Ipswich and, and Wednesday are probably going to be blips. It feels with Argyle, is this going to be the start of a slump and? A resounding no uh, after their two their two wins, which which keeps them top of the league, and can they stay there going into the new year? Because um, you know it's, it's incredible what they're doing, and, and I think most importantly, especially after the heartbreak of last year, every three points is that much closer to to ensuring that they are clear of of, of seventh place, which which might end up being important. Pure quality from Morgan Whitaker to win it for Argyle. Uh, chatted about him quite a bit on the NTT Twenty squad last week. Really interesting player because he's he's still only 21 about to turn 22 feels like we've seen a fair amount of him over the last two three seasons he's, he's a player that excites a lot when he's on it partly because he mm. gets a ton of shots off I mean his I haven't looked at this but if you told me he had taken the most shots in the whole EFL this season I'd believe you he has <laughs> he has started 17 games and he's had four shots or more in 11 of them one game he had 10 shots <laughs> but he also <laughs> kind of frustrates a bit and and maybe that shot volume is is a part of it you know, decision-making, um, not always as sharp as you'd want it to be. But, you know, having a player like that in your team helps you win games like this. And that's what he did. Also, a magnificent winning goal from Neymar, Marvin Johnson, um, for Sheffield Wednesday. Little half. That's what they call him. There we go, mm. me. Maybe you should have come <laughs> up with that clever nickname. I know, I should have done. For Oxford. Yeah. Maybe he wouldn't have left. 11 unbeaten now, Wednesday. And... Look, it's not particularly pretty right now. Three draws in a row. Uh, I think there were a few. There was a bit of chuntering, as you might expect. You know, it's 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 tense up there. It's tense because there's three of them and there's only two automatic promotion spots. I think fans would like to see them look like visibly a bit more dominant, a bit more superior. And I, I kind of, I definitely see that. But I also, and I know I keep saying it, I, I really do believe for, for Wednesday right now, it is just a case of, of head down, keep going. I think Darren Moore has got a really good grip on, on the team in terms of his man management, which he's always been praised for. The, the style and the tactics are working. You are picking up tons of points. Two points per game at the moment, but you're in third. I used soccer stats. I looked at the last eight completed seasons in the EFL across all three leagues, so 24 completed seasons. There's not a single example of three teams in a division getting two points per game or more for a whole season. So you just focus on that. 
I'm pretty sure Sheffield Wednesday will maintain that sort of level. And if they do, I'm pretty sure they will win promotion. Uh, who else is going well? Wickham are, George. Uh, I was excited about this game against Bristol Rovers. Picked Bristol Rovers on the betting show, but Wickham won 2-1 from behind. Wickham uh, appear to be Wickhaming, which is good news for their fans. Wickhaming are just the right time. This was... Yeah, a, a, a big win for them, especially given the circumstances of the game where they went behind. And um, we know that Bristol Rovers are trying to prove themselves as being possible promotion candidates and will certainly believe that they can do that. Um, so, yeah, it was a, a Josh Coben goal um, to, to get Bristol Rovers ahead. Um, and then the uh, the Wiccan comeback was was impressive. And, you know, I, I don't, I'm sure Joey Barton may uh, argue differently um but i think you couldn't begrudge uh wickham their their win recording sam vokes after you mentioned he'd been out of the side um but you know a pretty scrappy lewis wingle i mean i don't think bristol rovers lose too much um from this they've been on a on a magnificent run and i think january is, is going to be so important to them in, in terms of trying to keep hold of collins uh, as it looks like coben will, will definitely be staying uh, according to middlesbrough so um so many attacking options they've got and um, as i say going to wickham and, and coming off second best at this stage isn't the end of the world but we'll certainly feel frustrated having been one one of the heads so um yeah i think these are two sides who probably there isn't a great deal between them and we'll be in, in the mix uh, come the end of the season. But uh, Ainsworth getting one over Barton on the day. And is Mimetti involved in both of Wickham's goals going very well at the moment. Uh, MK Dons won Forest Green nil. This was the first game in charge for Mark Jackson, who I'm going to ask you about in just a second. Let me tie off the game first. Uh, it wasn't an unbelievable MK Dons performance. This wasn't suddenly MK back at top seven, top six, top half levels. Uh, not at all. It was it was. It felt to me basically like everything Liam Manning didn't get for the last few months, which is just how it goes. Isn't it ironic? They got a goal from range from Harvey. Lovely strike. Uh, they didn't concede a goal from range, which feels like they've done quite a lot. Their goalkeeper was good, made some strong saves rather than letting goals in that you'd expect him to save. Um, and the opposition didn't have their shooting boots on. And I think Liam Manning would probably have watched that game feeling a little hard done by doesn't really matter. Mark Jackson is the manager. He's got three points in his first game against a team in and around it as well. Uh, valuable three points, George. Um, you spoke to Joe Donahue last week when Mark Jackson was appointed. He comes from Leeds United, where he was described as being part of the furniture. So what do we think of this appointment? Yeah, I think it looks exciting. I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert having spoken to Joe, but um, he's clearly a coach with um, a massive reputation at Leeds, uh, having worked his way through the U systems to being promoted by Jesse March for, for working with the first team this season. Um, you would think that his, you know, having worked under Marcelo Bielsa and Jesse March, he's probably going to be influenced fairly heavily by them. And he said said as much in his interview. Um, and we saw, unsurprisingly, you know, ridiculous possession numbers, especially at nil-nil uh, in this game, um, where MK Dons did look to dominate the ball. Maybe having a bit more possession in deeper areas, a bit more similar to to, to the Russell Martin area than Liam Manning, maybe. But you know, it's, it's one game at home, uh, and it's probably too early to start drawing um, conclusions. But he's certainly, yeah, he's a guy with a, a, who it seems like has massive respect from those who worked with him. Um, I'm I'm happy to see that Liam Sweeting stuck to the process rather than tearing it up uh, off the back of this. And interestingly, you know, I kind of thought that if they did go down the route of um, a, a first-team coach with his first managerial job, it might not go down too well with the fan base. But they seem to be on board with him in general. Maybe it's because he's a an ex-pro with plenty of, of games under his belt. Maybe it's because he's a bit older at 48. You know, he's not some young kind of mid-30s, mid um, bright young thing who 
um, you know, you could argue is is not ready for the role. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm positive. I'm excited. The question is now, you know, those at the club will stand by their recruitment in the summer. Will say the squad is good enough. A lot of the fans do not agree. So, do they judge Jackson off the back of what they believe that the squad isn't good enough and therefore staying up the season is is a success? Or will the club be setting a higher bar? Um, we will see. I'm sure this season is it's just a case of let's make sure we're a league, league One club next season and then we start to build again. And League One has another new manager in charge of Charlton Athletic and it's Disco Dean Holden who <coughs> takes charge of Charlton. Uh, he was most recently at Stoke City uh, working alongside Michael O'Neill. Uh, of course, he was the assistant manager to Lee Johnson for a long time, or rather the first team coach, I believe. I know Lee Johnson's got his own sidekick on that front. Uh, McAllister, I think his name is. So first team coach of Bristol City for a long time. Took charge of them during the pandemic season. Started really well. Fell away quite dramatically. Uh, lost the job. Uh, was replaced by Nigel Pearson. So uh, an interesting candidate, someone who's been um, uh, at, towards the top of the market uh, in the betting markets for a lot of League One managerial jobs recently and some championship jobs as well. And and in his first game, they drew one with Posh. And I was pretty excited by what I considered to be a super lively first lineup for Holden at Charlton. Um, mm. It was it it looks on paper to be back to the the three one four two that we that we saw at Bristol City that we were pretty excited about after a month of the season where I think they won five or six in a row. And and the most the most sort of amazing thing in our eyes then was that he was playing Andy Vyman as a centre midfielder, as a really attacking number eight. And he was playing two really attacking number eights um, and two up top with one de- uh, defensive midfielder sitting and then two attacking wingbacks. And it looks like what he what he went for here. Um, but a lot of youth, a young keeper in Maynard Brewer, a young centre-back in Ness, and then Daniel Carnu, 18-year-old, and Miles Lieburn, 19-year-old, playing up top together and combining for their goal. Carnu with a really nice bit of play and a great cross. Lieburn using every inch of his six-foot-five frame to, to stretch and head home. So um, they couldn't hold on. Posh scoring a goal from a set-piece situation. A couple of chances for both sides after that. But uh, yeah, most notable for me was the lineup, the formation, uh, Fraser, and, uh, Fraser and Payne as the attacking eights. I mean, that's on paper, technically quite fun. Um, what do you make of the Dean Holden appointment at Charlton? As discussed many times in the last few weeks, there's a lot <laughs> more going on at Charlton than just uh, dugout news. Yeah, it feels like two clubs played here where there's a bit more going on than just dugout news. Um, where at Peterborough, there have been grumblings uh, off field that Darren McAntony has, has naturally come out and, and slammed and, and said that they're nonsense. Um, but something doesn't really feel right to Peter at the moment, if you ask me. Um, this, if they'd lost this game against Charlton, that would be the second time this season that they've lost, they'd lost six games in a row in all competitions, which is is, is kind of weird. Rumours about Johnson Clark Harris moving with Ipswich being touted as a as a possible destination. Rumours about Jack Taylor leaving as well. Again, quashed, but the proof will be in the pudding. I'm sure if they do move on, suddenly those quashes will become with a, a justification instead. Um, but yeah, and with Charlton. Um, a lot of off-field appointments. You've got Dean Holden coming in as manager. You know, you mentioned Andy Vyman there, but I also remember suddenly the likes of Zach Viner and, and Tyreek Backinson being um, first-team players from relative obscurity. You know, Dean Holden clearly somebody who is happy to look to to youth and and throw them into the first team. You know, those are the first seventy-four minutes that Carney have played in the league this season, having played in the EFL Trophy and the and the Carabao Cup, and and that being vindicated immediately. I think Andy Scott is a really positive. 
and a bit of a coup, to be honest, a, a positive appointment there. I know a lot of people will think, well, look at Forrest's transfer business um, that he was partly in charge of. I have a feeling that will uh, that Forrest's transfer business will probably age quite well over time. And certainly at, at the work he did at Swansea, I mentioned Peru and Oberfemi already in this podcast, but he was very much responsible for for their signings. Um, somebody who knows not only the market here, but, but the European market quite well as well. Although you think at Charlton's level of recruitment, that might not be too helpful, but certainly a, you know, a bright um, guy who I didn't anticipate would be working for a League One club any anytime soon. With the ownership, who knows? You know, it's it's all quite murky. Um, so yeah, maybe we can call this the murky derby. Uh, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Um, you know, who, who knows what's going on behind the scenes at either. But um, but certainly on the pitch at the moment, um, Charlton showing some signs of life. Whereas Peterborough, despite having such a wealth, you know, such wealth of talent there, um, they need a win fairly soon. And uh, I think their fans feel like they need to keep hold of key players as well. And Jan, Burton beat Lincoln three 0 I said on the betting show, it, it was time for Burton to start winning games. They've gone through a horrendous period of fixtures uh, and they kind of came out, you know, with quite a lot of credit for their performances, for a lot of the draws against good teams, but not actually very many points on the board overall. They need to start winning these sorts of games and they did so very convincingly here. They got ahead from a set piece, another goal from range, this time from Johnny Smith, and then another from a penalty. And it just looked to me like Lincoln were a bit shell-shocked by Burton. I, I don't have a huge amount of sympathy. I would argue that they shouldn't have been surprised if if you've been watching Burton. Hell, if you've just been listening to the pod for the last few weeks and months, you'd have known what was coming. You should have known the way that they were going to attack you, the manner in which they were going to attack you, the, the intensity as well. Um, and I, I would have expected a, a sturdier response, but that game was over within half an hour. And it, it makes the League One relegation battle pretty interesting, George, because... If Burton play like they have done for a few months from now to the end of the season, they're not getting relegated. If MK Dons mm. get, let's say, 30% better under Mark Jackson, which we would expect to happen, it's not guaranteed, then they probably wouldn't get relegated either. So that's two of the bottom four right now, which means that the likes of Accrington, Cambridge, Cheltenham, Fleetwood, Lincoln, Charlton, Oxford... No room for complacency here. No room for extended runs of, of poor form. The, the gravity towards the League One relegation quad could be quite strong. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're 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 right, though. I mean, I think there are. <clears throat> I think in Morecambe, um, you've got a team who it feels kind of very hard to see how they get their way out of it. But certainly, that kind of group beneath them, because of Burton, I completely agree about Burton um, and probably MK as well. Cambridge, Cheltenham, Accrington, Fleetwood, Lincoln, and, and and probably Shrewsbury are the ones I'd be looking at as, as being in danger. Bruce lost 2-1 to Cambridge, George. Massive win for Mark Bonner and Cambridge from behind. Huge. It would have been eight home league games without a win, and they were behind here. And then Shiloh Tracy just changed it all with an incredible what piece of goal. 1v1 skill and then curling it in from 25 yards. Just turned everything on its head uh, before a very heavy Shea Dunkley touch allowed Sam Smith to run in and score. That is someone who also really needed a goal. Smith had had a ridiculous amount of shots since his last goal. Um, maybe this will be the, the start of a little run for him, a little streak for him. Let's hope so. For his sake, for Cambridge's sake, just massive to get the three points there. A, a loss would have felt very damaging, I think. Uh, and Port Vale won Morecambe nil. Pretty poor game. Um you know, Morecambe have been conceding for fun recently, but here they actually did okay to restrict Vale, who, who 
who were a bit rusty, not exactly cutting loose. Um, but I think you said it yourself, they can't just always rely on Ripley to save shots and let the opposition have as many as they have been. And we kind of saw it here because Shipley let in a, a long-range skidder from Gavin Massey that, well, he has set such high standards for himself that I expected him to save it, put it that way, and he didn't. Um, but I certainly won't be blaming Ripley, but it's just a, yeah, it's a it's it's a reflection of, of how Morecambe need to tighten up at the back. Um, a 1-0 win for Vale in the end. And then draws between Accrington and Barnsley, 1-0, Exeter and Portsmouth, 0-0. That's four games without a goal now for Pompey. Uh, and Bolton Derby was nil-nil as well. League two. I think we should start at the bottom. I tell you what, I'm going to good cop Hartlepool and Colchester. And you can bad cop the teams that they beat, Rochdale uh, and <laughs> Gillingham. Why don't you start with, with Gillingham? They're kind of big talking point in League two at the moment. New ownership. Very, very excited fan base. Brad Gallinson, American, taking the majority shareholding majority ownership uh promising big things promising most excitingly lots of shiny january signings the first one's already through the door tom nichols of crawley has joined chills but the performance was miserable again they've still scored only six goals in 21 games and only one from open play bottom of the football league but gillingham are going to be on our lips a lot in the next few weeks and months i think yeah i'm intrigued to know um how a property magnate from Florida has decided to invest in in Gillingham. Um, that's no negative thing. Maybe he's just a massive football fan. Maybe he played football manager and took them to the Champions League and thought, you know what, I'm going to do that in real life. Um, the one positive, as you say, is you know, with all of these, well, with all new owners and often with foreign investment, um, you want to see some proof in the pudding. And it's all very well and easy saying, you know, we're going to have a, an aggressive, lucrative transfer window. But um, until you see the actual action, as I'm sure Charlton fans will tell you times five, <clears throat> you know, words are very cheap. Um, but to see Nichols come in before the, w- the window even opens is a nice just signifier to Jules fans that, that, yeah, okay, this guy isn't full of it. He's willing to pay a, a small fee for a player who's been very good at this level before. Um, massive frustration though in the game here where, you know, to to lose at home up against a team um, from not too far away who are pretty close to you as well in the in the league table, is a is a is a massive massive blow to them. And you know an opportunity here to get the new era off to a flying start has 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 been wasted with a really drab performance as well. They need to find a way to, to sort out their their goal scoring issues. Tom Nichols, in my mind, is whilst being a, a very tidy good player who can score goals, I'm not sure he's somebody who can come into a team that struggles to create anything and immediately turn things around. So. You know they've got their work cut out in order to to improve in my mind. Um, but yeah, I, I guess that the Scally era being over um, will be um, a, a big positive for for lots of Jules fans. On the positive side of the result was Colchester United, the first time that Colu fans have travelled to an away game in the league this season and seen them pick up all three points. They had lost. 10 of 11 away from home before this. Uh, the winning goal was a nice move as well. Um, finished off by talented youngster Junior Chamado, the right back, who is sure to have some interest in January. He has been one of their more consistent performers this season and always seems to have a, a nice little bit of quality as well uh, in attack, which is what teams are always looking for from their fullbacks these days. Um, a big win for Colu, you have to say, and a big win for Hartlepool as well at Rochdale, another team who had been desperate away from home until the other week, beating Crawley 2-0, uh, and then this one 2-1 against Rochdale. It's not 
harsh to say that these away wins have been almost entirely powered by Callum Cook's right foot <laughs> and Rollin Menaisi's head because against Crawley, they defended for their lives. They kept it nil-nil for as long as possible without showing much ambition. And then Cook curled a brilliant set piece onto Menaisi's head for 1-0. Then Cook curled a beautiful set piece onto the head of a Crawley defender for 2-0, home goal. Here, Callum Cook's right foot curled the ball onto Rollin Menaisi's head for 1-0. And then after Rochdale had equalised with an absolutely astounding back heel from Ian So Hansen. good. Uh, it was Callum Cook who curled a beautiful free kick into the top corner. And, you know, watching that team live, it was so clear that Callum Cook was on a completely different technical level to anyone else that Hartlepool have. Probably most of Crawley's players as well, although they have some players who would consider themselves technical players. So if this is Keith Curl's game plan away from home, I think I said I don't expect it to to actually work against most League Two teams. And I don't expect them to win this many away games, but it's worked against Crawley and it's worked against Rochdale, two poor teams lacking in confidence who aren't very good at, at breaking down low blocks. So good on him. Keith Carroll doing well um, to move Hartlepool away from the danger zone in the last few weeks. Rochdale um, back to being yeah pretty miserable again, I'm afraid. Uh, elsewhere... A big in... miss from your best mate as well. Who's that? Ethan Ebanks-Landell missed a huge chance uh... at one all. It's just the fine margins, isn't it? It you is. Know? It is. It is. Uh, elsewhere in League Two, oh, Carlisle won Bradford nil. Good for it. Yeah, they were class, weren't they? Mm. Um, their home form is is incredible this season. You know, they've lost one game at home, and that was a three-two defeat against Leighton Orient. So, n- no um, shame in that at all. And they've kept six clean sheets in their other games. Um, they've only conceded. They haven't conceded. Only one game so far this season, they've conceded more than one goal. That, bizarrely, was a three-all draw against Rochdale, which is kind of strange. Um, but yeah, they were really good value for this. They were comfortably the better side. Um, not only did they go ahead, um, it, albeit from a corner from Paul Huntington, but it was, it was when they were ahead that impressed me the most, where they were still they were still the team in the ascendancy. They were still the team creating the better chances. Bradford didn't really lay a glove on them um, for much of the second half. And they move up stealthily into, into fourth. Uh, which has kind of come out of nowhere. Um, so, you know, we've been saying for a long time that we thought they were genuine automatic promotion candidates and and there's absolutely no denying that now. I love a stealthy fourth. I do love a stealthy fourth. We expected Bradford to be in and around that position, but in pretty poor form at the moment and, and mm. particularly defensively, their, their solidity seems to have completely deserted them. Carlisle had tons of chances here. And yes, Carlisle are a good team, but you look at, at the last eight or so games, look at the underlying numbers, Bradford, bottom six for XG conceded in the last eight or so games and having to def- depend on on the goalkeeper to make a string of saves just to make it 1-0 rather than 2 or 3 here. So not quite sure what's happened there. Mark Hughes just lost his grip a little bit on, on things defensively at Bradford. I know the fans um, particularly angry this weekend about Richie Small with the captain um, who walked down the tunnel without, without giving him a clap, which is always quite annoying in fairness. I think not that hard to do, Richie. You've been, you've been around the block. Not that hard to do, mate. Uh, but I want to talk about Walsall beating Swindon 2-1 and Walsall's great form. The game itself, from behind win, um, uh, a late, 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 late winner from Manny Mont, whose finish for the winner just really made me laugh. This was this was a centre-back who is not particularly composed in the opposition six-yard box, who looked to me like he was trying to boot the ball high and out of the ground, like sort of... Um, is it uh is it Peter K in the in the advert where he just boots Have it? Have it, uh, 
That's what it looked like Manny Month was doing. I think if he'd connected properly, it would have gone over the bar from five yards. Instead, he got a sort of glancing contact and it slid in. Um, and I'll explain, well, I'll use legend of the NTT 20 squad, Matt Vale, to explain why things are feeling so good at Walsall. They lost to Tranmere on the 24th of September. They were on poor form at the moment and things were at a very low ebb. They were eight without a win in the league. A week after that, they scored a late equaliser, undeserved in some eyes, at Stockport and haven't looked back since. Uh, seven wins, two draws and one defeat in that time. A really, really good points tally. Um Matt saying, well, what's changed? It's a mixture of things. We probably weren't as bad as those mid-August to late September results suggested, but we've also got a more settled starting 11 and formation. Sticking to, to 3-4-1-2, uh, which is fairly classic Flynn, I'd say, uh, but a bit more technical than it was at the start of the season where they were maybe a bit too conservative um, with two holding midfielders in front of a back three and two wingbacks who weren't the best going forward. It, it all looked a little bit stodgy. But now, particularly in midfield where... Uh, they've got a defensive midfielder and then maybe a Maddox or an Earring who are quite technical and then Isaac Hutchinson who's basically a pure number 10 uh, the balance seems to be working a lot better so they're in good nick um, they're in good shape in the league table and and the only big question mark now is Danny Johnson and Liam Bennett two low knees big contributors to them at the moment possible January departures depending on what their parent clubs decide to do um, both Mansfield and dare I say at Cambridge could probably use them um, and that could be a bit of a blow for them. But most importantly, off the field, they secured the Bescott Stadium freehold 10 days ago. So Walsall now own the stadium for the first time ever. Matt saying all things Walsall FC on and off the pitch are looking positive for the first time in a very long time. And God, that feels good to read. There's one thing mm. we like. It's positive, positive energy. Tramia fans finished the weekend with plenty of it. 3-0 win against Donny. George, I wasn't quite sure which way this was going to go, but it was fairly resounding. Yeah, it was. Um, Tranmere bouncing back to form when they need to. It's been a really dire couple of months, and you wonder if their you know their form is going to follow a similar pattern. Where this will be the start of, of some improvement um, for Donny. You know, any thoughts that the Schofield appointment was going to see them um, dance merrily up to the uh, top of the League Two table? Um, caught short. You know, they. It's just, and in my mind, not a particularly good squad um where they they lack quality in key areas and, and Schofield's got his work cut out in order to try and improve that they they don't look to me to be well set you, you look at certain clubs who've come down from league one um who look kind of you know you're looking at the likes of Northampton who look ready to to return whereas at Doncaster it all just seems like a bit of a mess at the moment so um yeah big big result for Tranmere but um yeah concerns again about about a Doncaster side who haven't really built upon what was a promising bright start for Schofield so often it feels like the fullbacks are the, are the key men when Tramia score goals and win. That was the case here. Uh, Dakers Cogley down the right with two brilliant assists. I've seen he's been linked with Aberdeen in January, which would be a bit of a blow for uh, for Tramia. Ethan Bristow on the other side, I'm sure, will be attracting admiring glances as well. He's so young and he's been so good this season. Uh, I mean, talk about Donny coming down from League One, not exactly hitting the ground running. I mean, it could be worse. We've got Jill's bottom of the table. They were in League mm. One last season. We got Crew near-ish the bottom of the table, and having just had a game, I'm not sure I've seen this before. Stockport two, Crew nil. Twenty-five shots to nil. Now, there's a small wrinkle, and that is that Crew did manage to hit the bar even without having a shot, yeah. with a wind-assisted corner that sort of floated over the keeper and bounced on top of the bar. But apart from that, this was. A training exercise was was attack v defence was a 
an attacking team working on their shape, trying to get their confidence up against a basically a team of, of mannequins and Stockport. In fairness, George are looking ridiculously strong at the moment, but wow, don't see that very often. No. Um, yeah, Stockport, as you say, looking incredibly strong. Thinking back to Nick Goff saying on the betting show a couple of weeks ago that there's an argument they're the best team in League Two. <clears throat> I, I don't disagree with him at this stage. They are ruthlessly efficient. They are proficient from set pieces. They are so good at preventing the opposition from getting a foothold in the game. Um, your boy, Will Collar, um, getting goals from midfield. Paddy Madden leading the line well. It, it's impossible to pick any holes in them at the moment. They'll just be so frustrated that they started the season so poorly because... Um, they should be in a three-way battle in my mind for for the title of Lake Norian and um, and Stevenage. That could still happen, I guess, if those top two do falter. But um, at this stage, you think for Stockport, the whole goal has to be to, to chase down Northampton in third. And given that fullbacks slash wingbacks who can provide in the final third are all the rage, I think there'll be a lot of admiring glances at Stockport's left wingback Ryan Rydell, who's only 21, got two assists here. I think it's six in total for the season is... Delivery from the left side is very, very impressive. He's got good targets for it as well, of course. Um, he joined Stockport from Fleetwood, where he started his career. Um, didn't quite break through into their first team, and Stockport paid a fee to, to grab him off him. Um, clearly, good bit of scouting there to see his potential. He's now a huge part of this team. Um, and, uh, and yeah, thriving down the left side with, with such good delivery. Uh, what else, George? Harrogate 3, Grimsby 2, or Crawley 1, Sutton 2? Crawley 1, Sutton 2, I think. Um where Sutton's away form has been their biggest issue so far this season. So for, for them to go and get a win at Crawley is got to be a, a bit of a concern. Um, we haven't seen much of an improvement from Matthew Etherington's, Matthew Etherington's side so far. Um, and Sutton were, were really good value for this win, you know, getting the two goals um, after a pretty drab first half uh, through Joe Kizzy and then Rob Milson penalty. Uh, Ote got a consolation late on in the game, but Crawley created next to nothing in the game um, and, and were very, very poor throughout. So, Quite a lot of concern, George, among the Crawley fan base. Um, the, the Tom Nichols enough. sale, very much sort of uh, lighting the touch paper. Um, it's not hard to understand why they already felt nervous about the new owners that joined at the start of the year, um, were willing to give them some time and are now wondering exactly what their intentions are and what they're able to do for this club because selling essentially your best player or one of your three best players to a relegation rival, having come in with big statements, lofty ambitions, a lot of words, uh, it's it doesn't look obvious, does it? doesn't look optimal. No, not at all. Um, I don't really know what they are playing at if I'm honest at the moment um as far as I know um they you know in Chris Galley they've got someone making football decisions who knows what he's doing so um you know I, I'm not going to sit here and say trust him because I don't I don't know him um but having made quite a lot of football decisions off the pitch that look quite impressive to me this one raises some pretty big red flags uh, at the moment. So we'll see what happens in January. Um, I, as I said before, thought this was quite an exciting project where if you get rid of all the noise around the crypto stuff, um, some of the, the deals they did in, in January, the way that they looked to to build for the club, you know, thinking back to that athletic article with Jack Pitbrook talking about, you know, the, the resources that were being spent on on training and athletic analytics. Um, 
let's see because it's been dire on the pitch. They've already made a managerial change and now they are selling, as you say, a, a key player to a to a, a rival. So I am concerned. Having already concern. Spent, concern. Having already spent some months now embarrassing large parts of their fan base with whatever you want to call it, funny or not mm. funny, uh, Twitter, YouTube videos. And all of a sudden, having having made a big song of dance out of connecting with the fans and being on the ground, um, that's that seems to have gone. I'm, I don't think the fans feel like they're getting the communication that they want and they're so concerned for the future of the club, understandably, given the, the bizarre late December sale of one of their best players that... Uh, it's yeah, it's it's very difficult to to watch for the moment. Um, this game was best known for a viral corner routine. Um, yet more reason to be a little bit embarrassed as a Crawley fan. Uh, sort of thing that happens every now and then, but doesn't help when you're in the position that they are. It was objectively very very funny. In fairness, so if you haven't seen that video, then uh, you might want to Google Crawley corner routine. Uh, Harrogate three, Grimsby two was a pretty lively one with a, a comedy winner. Uh, shot from range, bouncing off the post, bouncing off the back of Grimsby keeper and into the net. And Harrogate, you know, going well. They, they obviously had a, a pretty alarming uh, period where couldn't keep the ball out of their net and and for once weren't looking massively potent going forward. But it's three wins in a row now. In all three games, Luke Armstrong has scored a brace. So six in three for Luke Armstrong, someone who up until that point was was underperforming his XG, was working very, very hard, but was suffering from a lack of confidence in front of goal. Uh, not a bit of it now. Six in three for Armstrong, who's, uh, yeah, someone I always admire for his work rate. So I'm pleased to see him scoring. Uh, Leighton Orient, Stevenage was nil-nil. First v second, live on the telly. Nil-nil, not a... I, I, I would probably make a case that it was an intriguing game. I don't think it was a boring game, but it didn't have a ton of goal mouth action. Um this was, and I was there, I should say, which is why I'm going to talk about it rather than just brush it off because I invested some time to travel and watch that game. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about it. Uh, Wellens' is league leaders against Steve Evans' purple-shirted monsters. And uh, yeah, Stevenage came out quick. First 10 minutes, they had like three long throws and two or three corners right in front of me. And I was, I was expecting to see one of them get close to the goal, but actually Orient defended their box pretty well. There were a couple of ricochets that, that fell to an Orient defender rather than a, a Stevenage attacker. Um, but I really thought Orient did exactly what they had to do to earn the right to play, exactly what a lot of League Two teams have struggled with this season and not been able to do. Because from 15 minutes onwards, I would say Orient with a, with a better side without being amazing. It's pretty clear to me, particularly having watched them live, that with Archibald on the right wing and Smith on the left wing, and a game plan that's geared towards um, getting them isolated one v one against fullbacks. They've got a pretty good thing going. I think it's a, you know, it might not be a system that is racking up expected goals numbers compared to some teams who have picked up the the level of points that they have in in seasons past. But it's I still think a fairly repeatable way of playing as long as those two players stay fit. Uh, the sad thing for them was that the best chances fell to Darren Prattley and he didn't take them. Um, and by the end. I'd say both teams happy not to lose, happy with a draw here. Uh, would have felt damaging for either team to have lost, I think. So, um, yeah, both teams happy with the draw. But, you know, they both had spells where they gave it a go. So it was intriguing. The most memorable part, George, of my trip to Orient, Stevenage. <laughs> About 20 minutes to go, I was sitting right by the, the exit. And a guy, like, ran across the aisle in front of me and ran down the steps and left. 
20 minutes to go, nil-nil, Stevenage, in the Stevenage end, I should say. And I was like, that's a bit weird. It was Leonid Slutsky. <laughs> the former Hull City manager, Leonid Slutsky, was at Brisbane Road, sitting in front of me, which I didn't realise until he left. I have no was he, was idea. Was he in the seat in front of you? No, no, no. He was a couple of rows in front. Okay. But but he 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 walked down the steps right in front of me, and I... It must have looked super weird if anyone had been watching me at that time because I slightly annoyed with myself. I, I pulled out my phone to try and take a picture of him because he was moving so quick and I wanted to double check. But then one of the one of the like bars, uh, one of the railings was in the way. So I haven't got a, a clear picture of him. So I actually ran down the stairs after him <laughs> to like Amazing. double check and heard him go up to a steward trying to get out because they hadn't opened the, the big doors yet. And the steward said, like, are you leaving? And he said yes, and you could tell that it was a Russian person. And Did you, if you got if you got close enough to say that, I think I speak for everybody in the not the top twenty community for being like, why didn't you go and speak to him? No, like, what's going on? Too weird, mate. I wanted to leave him alone. <clears throat> definitely, definitely not too weird. Just definitely what? not too weird. He was trying to leave. He'd have been he'd have been, he'd have been so after happy. Do you think to hear that? Yes. Huh. Been like, oh, that's so nice. He recognised me. Let's have a chat about Hull. I mean, he, he is famously an amazing man who <clears throat> had to retire as a player because he injured his knee falling from a tree while saving a cat. And why wouldn't you? Has gone very viral on a few occasions for just being being nice and quite fun as manager I mean, of Al Vitesse and Ruben Kazan most recently. He, he's he's currently Kazan manager, isn't he? No, he left last month. Oh no! Okay. What's interesting is the the news of Norwich City sacking Dean Smith did drop about ten minutes before he got up and left. So maybe got a call from his Interesting. agent. Yeah. Okay. Imagine. Wow. I could have got a serious scoop there. I must admit, having having seen Michael Obafemi at that Sutton <laughs> Harrogate game early in the season when he was definitely like not really meant to be there, and then seeing Leonid Slutsky in Leighton, I feel like I'm basically like the EFL private investigator. Maybe people are just following you for hire. Elsewhere mm. in League Two, Mansfield one, Northampton one. Late goals from Swan to put. Mansfield ahead, and then a, a Decanio volley from Hoskins to equalise. Um, spoils shared, and then Salford won, Barrow won, Callum Hendry with a very unna- unnecessary tackle to get sent off at 1-0 up with Salford looking fairly comfy. Barrow having famously not come back uh, from going behind once this season, but they did. Maybe my favourite goal of the whole day from Jordan Stevens on the half volley um, to equalise right into the top corner. And that concludes the Boxing Day and 27th December recap. What's next? Well, we'll have a betting show out in time for the New Year's Day and the 2nd of January games. That'll probably be on the 31st morning of. Let's hope so. Keep an eye out for that. Uh, The Monday pod next week, I guess, will have to be on Tuesday or Wednesday. Stay tuned for that. Um, But 21 Under 21, our show on Sky Sports. We're so excited about it. Um, Let us know on Twitter at Entity20Pod who you think might be on our list of 21 Under 21 uh, and please make sure you stick it uh, on your sky planner if you can and make sure that you give it a watch and that thanks george been good fun send my love to the little one thanks mate and you have a great evening chat again soon go out